Welcome to Just a GP podcast. I'm Ashley Broomfield and today we have Charlotte Hesby and Rebecca Hoffman as well. Charlotte and I are going to be interviewing Beck about her article in Australian Journal of General Practice that we spoke about in our first ever podcast. Uh, what was your highlight of the week, Charlotte? Um, the highlight for me this week has actually been attending the first ever uh, Practice Owners Conference down in Melbourne run by the RACGP. And it was a really great weekend. There were about 490 people over that time frame who were all practice owners coming together from all over Australia. And it was just really great hearing about different practices, styles, every the sort of the things, the issues that um, face um, everybody who owns practices and just hearing from a really good range of very useful hands-on speakers about both about sort of running a business, selling a business, marketing a business, and then looking at how we can actually align that with clinical outcomes for our patient care. Yeah, that's excellent. So that was my highlight. Hmm. I really wanted to get to that conference and I was too late. It was already sold out. So Yeah, it was completely oversubscribed, which was very exciting. So there's going to be another one in May next year. So anyone who's listening who's interested as well, just watch the um, RACGP space and it's going to be May next year. Do you know where? They're thinking that it's going to be in Tasmania Ooh. because they can't anymore do big conferences in Tasmania. The RACGP con- annual conference is too big to be able to run in Tasmania anymore. So it'll, it's a nice venue for a smaller stock. Excellent. I love Tasmania. Sounds like a great excuse to go down there, especially that time of yep. year. It'll be lovely. Sounds lovely. Yep. So, Beck, what was your highlight? Um, I, I have a very selfish personal one. Um, my twin sister has been living in Brisbane for the past 18 months because her partner's been deployed up there. And she's just told me she's coming back to Sydney oh. in a few months. Oh. So we'll be That's nice. living near each other again, which is exciting because I have missed her very much. So it's really cool that she's coming home. Does she have kids as well? No, she doesn't. Well, she has a fur baby, which is her baby. Excellent. So she can spend a bit more time with your Yeah, daughter. exactly. I can get a babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome <Yeah>. home. <laughs> Take yeah. on the duties, yes. That would be good. And what about you, Ash? Yep. Yeah, um, I have started meditating at lunchtime in the past week and I found it really useful to kind of release the baggage I guess of the morning and start the afternoon session afresh without feeling um, agitated about um, what results I might have in my inbox or what happened earlier in this morning it's a really nice kind of way to reset for the afternoon so that's my personal highlight. Well done. That's really cool and do you already know how to meditate or is this something new for you or how did you learn? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Mm. So uh, when I was in university, I learned a bit about meditation. I had a, a difficult struggle for a little while with anxiety. Um, and so I did, I went to this 
great little workshop that covered relaxation and meditation there. And then I try to do a bit of mindfulness stuff with my patients, but I haven't been doing it regularly until just recently. And so um, I, I was using, I, with my patients, I use the Smiling Mind app mm. and now I'm using a just a timer on my Apple Watch, which tells me it's, it's time to start breathing, then it's time to, you know, focus your meditation and then you're halfway, it's, it's finished. Awesome. So, yeah. Oh, well, you should touch base with yeah. us on that in another future podcast and tell yeah. us a little bit more. <laughs> I'll just be zenning out on the podcast saying all <laughs> you guys are talking. Cool. Well, I guess that yeah, segues really nicely into what my research was about. And I guess um, to begin with, I was very lucky to have a academic post um, at the University of Wollongong with my final extended skills training term for the RECGP training, um, which was something that I wasn't sure if I wanted to do at the time because I did have two young babies and it was going to be a fairly long drive and a bit of a commitment to do it for 12 months. Um, but I'm very, very glad that I did it and it's actually really opened some doors up for me now for what I look like I'll be doing for the next few years at least. Um, and when I initially called the um, supervisor there, so Professor Andrew Bonney, and had a chat to him about what research projects they had underway, he really just left it up to me that I could do almost anything I wanted to do, which is quite lovely. And I'd always wanted to have a little bit more of a look into burnout and more more well-being amongst junior doctors um, and what could potentially be looked at in training programs to help reduce the burnout. And as with all research, that question was far too big. That was nothing that I was going to be able to answer in 12 months. So I did a much, much smaller question than that, which was really what the experience of junior doctor and hospital trainees were and what they saw as the barriers and supports to burnout and what improved their wellbeing. And did you do a definition of what burnout is and what it looks like? Oh, so look, I have a definition in my mind of what burnout is and what it looks like. Um, it's been defined by Beyond Blue and similar people as really almost a scale between stress and depression as really a trigger between one and the next and the next. Um, in my mind, I really see it as exactly that, as something that is causative, so something occurs to happen and it could lead to something else. So it, in itself, it's not a mental illness or a diagnosable problem, um, but it has the potential to become one in certain situations for certain people. Great, thanks. So, Beck, what were your findings? Sure. Um, so I guess, well, my hypothesis to begin with, well, what I was planning on looking at was that I'd presumed that general practice registrars would have a luxury lifestyle and they were doing things really well and 
really enjoying their registrar training years and had lots of support and were all very happy and that hospital trainees were the opposite and really struggling because that's really at the time where a lot of the media attention had been on. Um, and interestingly, that's not what I found. I actually ended up finding that both both the general practice registrars and the hospital registrars were really struggling and there were lots of reasons they were really struggling um, and that they then generally could be classed into three broad groupings which I've um, drawn a model up for in the journal. So the first one is the one that I guess probably most of the junior doctors were aware of, um, which is self-care, but also aware that they probably either did inadequately or poorly or could do better. And that's really acknowledging that they needed to be able to say no to things and needed to exercise and diet and sleep because sleep is so important. Um, as well as the other important things about self-care that you've mentioned before, Ash, the meditation and mindfulness, um, which a few of them has mentioned was really important. And one of the registrars very importantly pointed out that their colleagues who had GPs themselves actually did much better than the ones that didn't. The next theme that we found was um, a surprising one for me, but in hindsight, I guess it probably shouldn't be, which was that of expectations of self, which is when um, the registrars were in unfamiliar situations or not confident in their skills, um, that they were more stressed. And so if they weren't prepared to be going into the term or the situation or the encounter or the practical skill which they were about to do, they were much more stressed than what they'd been if it was something that they'd done multiple times before. Um, and surprisingly, this was a problem both for general practice registrars and hospital registrars. So it's not the lack of supervision or the lack of education. It's really their belief in their own skill set or their understanding of their own skill set. And the third theme was the response of others. So the response of others and whether or not that met the expectations of the registrars. So whether or not when they'd brought up their stress and their burnout, whether that was responded to at all the different levels that of concern could be responded to appropriately. And yes, it is a very biased sample that I would have interviewed people who have opportunistically decided to discuss their stress and burnout but across both hospital and the general practice registrars, they felt that support and response from all of those levels that should be responding positively was in largely lacking. And they weren't, they were good when everything was going well, when everyone was happy, the response was good. But as soon as there was a concern, they felt that there was just inadequate support there. Um, Beck, can I inter interrupt and just ask, so how many registrars did you interview and how did you recruit them? Sure. So I interviewed 10, five from general practice and five from the hospital. And so I'd advertised in 
the GP Synergy um, newsletter that I was doing the project and I'd also advertised at the University of Wollongong's hospital campuses, so Wollongong and Nowra, that I was um, doing the same. And then most of it was either directly from seeing that advertisement or from word of mouth. And the word of mouth was then either from um, other people who had participated or actually from the other academic registrars who were also doing the academic registrar term who had family or friends who they thought might want to be involved. Great, thanks. So from your perspective, what then would be the key learnings that we need to you know take forward in terms of what next so I guess for me that depends on who I'm talking to so if I'm talking to a junior doctor I want to tell them to have a GP that it's okay to say no to things that you're not comfortable with and also that it's really important to do the research for whatever job career pathway procedure it is that you're about to go into because at least being aware of what your what is going to happen is actually really important if you jump into something without any knowledge whatsoever it's much 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 more stressful and a lot of that information is available if you don't know where to find it if you talk to somebody who's been there already done it before they can tell you where to find it And then the next level up, so to the supervisors and to the hospital administration, um, that it also depends on what their capacity is because I know not everybody can be everybody's superhero, but maybe to check in with their registrar and just see how they're going, how their day is, Um, just to check in every day to see that whatever it is you're asking them to do that they're comfortable with, that they've done before. And then if you do have the capacity to be a superhero, then to take on um, some of the policies around hours and workplace and what actually can be done to reduce the stress and burnout from a higher, bigger picture level than just an individual registrar, junior doctor, who just needs to be heard sometimes. So that's an interesting dilemma um yeah because certainly i've talked to a number of the ama doctors who've been involved in trying to get the you know the hours and contracts for the hospital doctors not not the gp registrar ones um and there's this real um dilemma between the need to get your training experience and the knowledge that a lot of the experience you get in your after hours shifts and when there's less on is often the sort of like the key learning times um, versus the having that much more you know regulated uh, mm. shorter hours etc and you know, sort of more control over what your after hours roster is um, so it's you know it's it's a it's a bit of a difficult question because you know you sort of think oh it's easy you just do it this way but it's actually not what the doctors want either I know I know and I guess um when you're doing it and in the middle of it and I can speak for the GP registrars and myself when it's only a three-year course and you're going to grin down and bear it and just get through it no matter how bad it is sometimes you will 
that may not be the best way. And in hindsight, it probably isn't. Um, and we've got all of these new medical students coming through. Um, I guess there's a really nice opportunity now to be able to put them into those really long hour jobs with really onerous overtime to reduce that element of stress because really the numbers of junior doctors in training isn't a problem now, it's where to put them. I think uh, you both raised some really interesting points and this is something that I've thought about a lot, you know, how do we balance the learning of a training pathway with workforce, with well-being it's a really tough question and I, I see back that we've got a lot of scope in terms of future research of this sort of stuff and it's probably something that would be useful to do over a number of years even but I, you know I think a lot of learning actually happens when you make mistakes and or you're put in a situation where you can't ask somebody else or you have to you know be Hang on, the dogs have just decided to to play, and they're about to start barking at each other. So I'm going to kick them outside and then and then reconvene. Meanwhile, mine are actually behaving themselves. So you know, there's um, you, you tend to learn a lot when you've when you've screwed up, and that's really hard, I think, these days because you know perhaps 20, 30, 40 years ago in medicine, when mistakes were made, um, you know it. it it didn't have as much of an impact, maybe. I don't know, I wasn't there, but there's a lot of, I think, you know, medicine recruits people who feel as though they do a good job, that they are um, good at learning, that they're good at adapting, that they're good at recognising what their weaknesses are. And when you put people in a high-pressure job where they will make mistakes and mistakes is where they may learn, it becomes a real recipe for disaster in terms of well-being. And so I wonder whether what what we're missing here is that support part of it. You know, is it that, you know, yes, we can put junior doctors and registrars in situations where they'll be challenged, but we're not doing necessarily a great job at, at asking if they're okay debriefing about events saying yes I've done that too um you know is don't worry the mistake that you made wasn't life-threatening or you know one day you might make a mistake that does cause significant harm and you're still human you know and I don't think that where the medical profession is that good at sharing when that stuff happens, you know, where it's very competitive and hierarchical and there's a lot of that, particularly as you're going through training. And it's, it's I think, difficult for registrars to understand where they fit or junior doctors understanding where they fit in terms of it, does everybody go through this too or have my supervisors been through this too and did they get through it and is it going to be okay? Yeah, and I, I think you've raised another interesting issue which um, from my perspective so Beck was sort of talking about just that sort of you know the three years of training being the only time that this is stressful well actually that's not actually the case this is actually a long-term career issue that um, that we all have to make choices about how we manage how you you know what sort of 
practice you will be and how much overtime you're going to be having to do and who's responsible and how many are you sharing it with and who are the key decision makers and the supporters. And I think if we don't learn how to manage that as junior doctors, then managing that as a senior doctor is, is you know, I, you're sort of putting it putting it off. Um, I don't think that I'm not saying that we should make it stressful as a junior doctor. I actually think we should do exactly what you're talking about, Ash, which is build a structure that is much more around supporting people, having enough people on to make it so that you've got a team working together rather than being the only person on who can make that decision. Certainly debriefing with one of my colleagues, she um, was, she did a registrar term in well in her internship she was sent up to a small rural hospital where there was this major catastrophic car accident and she was the only doctor on when that happened and she sort of had five desperately unwell very severely um, injured patients that came through her doors in the emergency department that she had to deal with of which two died and Three then were transferred, you know, for intensive care to Sydney. And she obviously has never gotten over that. But what was very interesting was when she went back to her feeder hospital to sort of debrief, she she was just told to get over it and to, you know, did she think she was special? And there was no acknowledgement of what a great job she'd done. There was no acknowledgement of how stressful that must have been and how did she actually do her prioritising and you know, what a great, you know, that was, you know, well done you. And then also talking about the trauma that those, you know, losing the patients, etc. And I think that's, if when that's done well, I think that people cope with a stress that you can't predict much better than otherwise. Yeah, I agree. That's, um, there's a book that's written called This Is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay who is, was in the UK in the NHS and he's diarised his experience at, through his internship, residency and registrar training and he writes the book as, um, as these diary entries of what's happening. It's really interesting because you see all the recipes for burnout, you know, he's working long hours, um, he's in an under-resourced department, he loses a social connection with his friends. He is working so much that his relationship with his partner is affected. Um, he he misses one of his friend's wedding. He hasn't that had that much contact with his family. He hasn't had the, you know, the holidays off to spend time with people that he cares about. And then, um, you know, he's dealing with the stresses of his job. And it's it's when he gets to the end of the book, spoiler alert, if you want to read it, stop listening now but gets to the end of the book and has a significant patient complication and the response from the hospital when he asked for time off to deal with it was no. They expected him to turn up again the next day and he just went, you know what, like I've given my life to this service and to medicine and I can't do that anymore. And so he left medicine altogether, which... Um, is a tragedy really but you know it brings that that just you know I've got a lot of insight into you know what does it take for someone to get to the point where they say I'm done 
and he kind of had all of those things happen. He didn't have that social connection with his family, with his friends, with his relationship. He didn't have time to sleep or exercise or eat well um, and he didn't have any strategies in terms of debriefing and then he didn't have any support at work. Sounds, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a great read for exactly all of those red flags. So those are the things that, yep, which then leads into Rebecca's, you know, other thing, which is that whole self-care thing, which is so important around um, how we manage that whole burnout thing. Um, and that's, it is, it's so easy to ignore those things because we have a population of high achievers who've always managed to do well and so they can't imagine that they need to do anything differently. So I guess that's a, a good time for us to talk about in the next stage in this podcast, which is what what strategies have you developed to maintain your own self-care and to prevent um I, I guess mine are ever-changing and the main thing for me is trying to do a few different things so trying not to put all of my eggs in one basket um I don't like doing the same thing every day and it took me a long time to realize that so I quite like some flexibility in my work week otherwise I do get a little bit just dispassionate yeah about what I'm doing so I really try to mix up what I'm doing and I've actually developed over a long well, reasonably long time an ability to work out when it's time to either drop something or pick something else up um, and I do look to find things that are different to other things so I do a little bit of teaching this now um, I do my clinical work and I'm doing my research and then outside of that, I have always have lots of things on the go. Um, I do some sewing, some quilting. I do some knitting. Um, and then I've got my family so that I spend time with the kids as well. So I like flexibility in self-care, I guess. Sounds like a very well Good, good plan for for you. I'm I'm similar. I like having um, a range of options. And um, since I mean, I went into general practice already having a small baby with me, so I never had the ability to really think about my career in general practice in any other way. But sharing it with my children, I think, is a good way to say. And so I started out being having to be general part-time um, and not actually wanting to change that for that whole sort of lifestyle thing. And so when the children were little, a lot of my spare time was around doing things with them and being family oriented. And then as they became more independent, um, I moved into doing things that were more selfish about me and not about them. And that, that in, so I run, um, I run four times a week and I go and do um, gym twice a week and that's early in the morning um, and that tends to set me up for the day and I found that if I don't run I'm not nearly as um, mentally on top of things after I've not done that for a week or two so that's sort of a really good baseline thing and then I also I mean I'm the same I, I sew I knit I like I like making things, being creative, and I get a lot of joy out of that. The same with cooking. I like cooking and doing 
those things and the pleasure of making something that other people really like is a is a thing that brings a lot of pleasure but then I've also had the joy of being a very having a very varied medical career so getting involved in governance and leadership and teaching and research has definitely added um you know some fun things to the work that I do and makes it so that burnout's not so um bad except the risk is is that you have too many things and you have to learn how to say no which we've talked about already good skill that one um the so for me it's been a development over time I think there's two themes occurring here because I have the same approach one is work what you do for your work and then what you do for yourself and what you do with your family or friends and so for me at work I've actually found the same I I found it really hard doing the same going to the same clinic every day and so now I have my, I'm lucky that the practice, one of the practices I work on has two locations. So I work a few days in those different locations and then I work at a, a third, a second practice in another location with a completely different population. And on the on my day off, I do whatever I want. <laughs> but I also throw in there for my day off the things that I like to do on the side Um you know, like being involved with the, the college or the university or, um, you know, different bibs and bobs here and there that you tend to pick up over time. And then for my personal well-being, I think the best thing that I ever did was get a dog because I previously wasn't a morning person and I would sleep in until, you know, half an hour before I had to be leaving the house and I would get up, get dressed, eat breakfast and leave. And since I've had a dog, I have a responsibility for him to get up and go for a walk, run thing in the morning and, and do that, which has been really beneficial for me. And I, I find the same as Charlotte does if I don't do that or I, I, you know, sleep in a bit and only go up to the coffee shop and back for my walk, then it's a, a very, very different day. So that's kept me really accountable. And then lately I've been getting into a bit more kind of um, – mindfulness-based work and doing a bit more meditation and that's been really useful in terms of family I think it's prioritizing that like Charlotte has or outlined you know it's um, making sure that you do put aside time to maintain the relationship between your partner and your family members and friends and uh, that so that when you do need them that they are there rather than going through you so hopefully that's a good recipe. <laughs> I don't think I've burnt out yet, but I feel like I probably was close in, you know, that early stage of registrar training where you're very, you know, you're, you're working independently. I wasn't in a very supportive practice at that stage and you, you're like, oh, my God, this could be a disaster. <laughs> and... I didn't have a lot of those strategies set up. So over time I've um, I've definitely become better at managing even my schedule. You know, I don't I don't consult back to back with lots and lots of patients per hour. I do six hours of consulting on my on my consulting days and I make sure I have a long lunch and I make sure that, you know, I adjusted my, my time so that I could do my morning thing and get to the clinic later rather than and get home so I could go and exercise if I wanted to in the evenings rather than have the, 
the my consulting hours dictate my day and I think that's that's easier when you're not in training you know as a as a GP it's much easier once you're fellowed to have that that flexibility um, which is important Yep, so that then might lead into us talking about some gems of practice. Has anyone got some gems that they want to share? I can start. Um, One of the things that I really um, like and use every day um, is an app called Doctor's Control Panel. Um, I don't know if either of you two know about Doctor's Control Panel, but it's a little add-on app that takes the data out of my medical records and using a traffic light system is able to give me a really quick idea about whether I'm actually needing to update that patient in terms of checking about their smoking, alcohol, etc., whether they're actually qualified to do certain item numbers, have I actually got their you know, weight, blood pressure, etc., all recorded and are they to target? Are they at high risk of cardiovascular disease? It sounds complicated, but it's this lovely little tiny square that pops up in the corner. It works particularly well with best practice, um, which is the software I use, and I love it. It has improved my um, just ability to be across the entire electronic record for each patient um, in a way that works well for me and I think for my patients because they actually, you know, know what to expect and know that we update things and that we update family history regularly and do the things that sometimes I it's sort of easy to forget because you think you've got it, but um, actually you haven't actually checked with them for the last one or two years. I'm going to tell you about one of my favourite ones I found this morning. So um, it is from Spleen Australia. So it is a handout on their website, so spleen.org.au, and it actually is a lovely three-page document on exactly what the patients who are asplenic need. So what they initially need, if you can, before they become asplenic, what they need for follow-up, what they need for travel, um, what patient education they need, what they need if they're going to have chemo or radiotherapy, and it's all in the one place, all up to date, um, regularly edited and updated by people. who do it for me. Um, and it's just so lovely to have it all in the one place without having to search multiple different places. And it was really handy when I didn't know the answer to have it all there for me. Cool. My One of my favourite resources that I'll share that I've just discovered is you know how when you have patients and you ask them about how much they would normally drink in a week and, you know, it's like, oh, I'll have two glasses or, you know, and you're trying to get an idea about how big is the glass. The um, New South Wales Health has released a resource, which is a website, where you can calculate how many standard drinks based off how they pour their glass. So now if someone drinks beer or wine I get up the glass and I get them to show me where they pour to and it calculates the standard drinks and it's really useful because it's visual it comes up as 
you know, the glass and they show you where they pour to and you choose big or small glass and then they get to see how many standard drinks that is and what one standard drink actually looks like. And so the idea of two glasses of wine may actually be five. And, yeah, so the the website is yourroom.health.newsouthwales.gov.au slash games dash and dash tools slash pages slash standard dash drink dash calculator dot ASPX. But it's way easier to find if you just Google standard drink calculator New South Wales, your room. It'll be the top top one on Google. Yeah, I think that was much easier. Thanks, Ash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that because I've got one of those glasses that the Veterans Affairs Department did which I like, but that's a, you know, like it's a beer glass, but it's quite helpful at least um, people sort of get, again, it's that visual concept of, of how big is um, the beer, beer quantities that they're drinking. Yeah, it is really good to help to quantify the difference between a drink and a few drinks. Well, I think that's it for today's episode. Uh, thank you to you both, and we'll be catching up in future episodes talking with Elizabeth Sturgis about her research in general practice on the therapeutic relationship and its impact on patient outcomes. We'll also be chatting with Dr Nicola Holmes on enhancing difficult consultation skills and clinician self-care and we'll be chatting about quality in general practice. Thanks for listening.